This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we discuss high-density developments and sustainability in Hong Kong. We meet an emerging glass artist in Czechia. Plus, in the US, we take stock of residential housing. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. First on today's show is a chat with Brian Liu. He's the vice chairman of Hong Kong-based design studio Ronald Liu & Partners. The team works in a high-density city, which forces them to tackle many of architecture's most pressing issues. You've got to be smart because the constraints are so tight. And as a result, the team is incredibly savvy in its designs, working with the existing environment and, and tapping into the city's natural assets. Case in point is its zero-carbon building in Kowloon Bay, Hong Kong. It had the city's first urban native woodland and made the most of natural ventilation and light. In short, it's an outstanding work of environmentally-minded design. To learn more about Bryant's approach and that of Ronald Lewin Partners, he joined me down the line. I began by asking how his firm approaches building in a high-dense manner in a way that's also sustainable. Hong Kong has historically been super dense. Uh, across, the, I think globally, we are one of the densest cities in the world. And for us to, how do we balance? I think the conversation is out of balancing health and safety of the building spaces. And then you bring in the humanity side of the conversation. How do you make it, you know, friendly, humanistic? Whilst we are all becoming more aware of the climate, uh, from the climate change to now climate emergency, how do we address that issue and providing a more comfortable environment? Um, for the end user. For the high density urban environment, obviously the heat island effect or what they call hot night, the number of evenings that are very hot are rising and it's a vicious circle thing. You build higher building, taller building, denser building and the world gets warmer, you put in more air conditioning and naturally at night, hot air gets spilled out and it gets warmer. So how do you address those uh, urban challenges? It's key while we're trying to lower the carbon footprint of the city. Natural ventilation, I always say using things that are free, shading devices, wind, orientation of buildings, uh, shadowing, shading. All these are important elements that are free. If we can leverage the free things first through passive design, then we think about the active component, which is uh, mechanical, material, and all that. I think the last 10, 15 years, the world is more conscious of energy use so a lot of buildings becoming increasingly better performance. I think the next challenge will be on materiality, on the actual the whole carbon footprint, and then the flexibility of buildings to adapting to future changes while dealing with more sort of climate resiliency. I think what's quite nice about this is it sounds like almost by putting people first, you can almost then start to map out a sustainable building, if that makes sense. Like if, we, if we're talking about creating comfortable environments, it's like one that is maybe shaded, one that is breezy, one that is cooling, one that is well lit. And it sounds like these are those sort of free components you were talking about that we can tap into as a starting step to building more sustainably. Is that is that a fair assumption? I think that's the right uh, assumption. That is the view that we take. Uh, I think Sustainability, very often, the conversation, I think, the last 10, 15 years, always been sort of energy, performance, very engineering approach. 
But ultimately, I think it's about people, right? It's about its comfort, the overall well-being of an individual, whether the space has enough lighting, whether the lighting is soft enough, the temperature is comforting, and then how we work. That has shifted tremendously since COVID and continue to evolve with new technology. So the behavior of people uh, then come into conversation. How do we work? What is work? How do we play? What is play? How do we relax?、Um, all these aspects come back into full circle. Ultimately, I think as architect, we are always conscious and sensitive, at least at RLP, to the people. So the convenience of the city, the convenience of life—all these are part of our internal ethos to discuss, and we generally break it down to sort of three major pillars. There's a cultural aspects that deals with this local context, local culture. There's a future-ready component,、uh, not just on technology, but also the climate resiliency. All those is part of、uh, accepting what's happening in the future, especially after COP twenty-eight when they. Announced that we kind of missed the 1.5 degree、uh, target. The other thing is, you know, design aspects that are technically nice and challenging and humanistic、uh, approach. So the life-centric approach, I think, is kind of how we frame our design. You talked about the behaviour of people and how they work, how they play, how they relax. How do you build that into your designs? You know, you're also talking about cultural, future-ready, and then obviously that humanistic. Approach under each of those three pillars. Are you considering the behaviour of people and how they might do things, or is it more isolated just to that last humanistic approach? In Hong Kong, the mailbox where you put you know, old traditional letters and a magazine and newspaper, it's increasingly less useful.、Uh, it's being replaced by a lot of、uh, Amazon or other delivery packages, and and the reception. Guy end up collecting packages. So the way we design lobbies,、uh, the back of house is completely different, and we should enable and allow these sort of new technology enabled behavior of boxes being delivered, food being delivered. How do we design a lobby? How do we design a place that allow that? These will start informing how are the spaces being used and on the individual basis. If you talk about a larger context with autonomous vehicle coming, do we still need parking lots? Do we still need gas station onsite parking? I want to ask about another one of your significant buildings. It's the zero carbon building in Hong Kong. I think the thing that really has drawn me to that, I guess, in terms of an exemplar of sustainable design, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant almost to use the word sustainable because it's become a non-word. But if we'll continue with that, <laughs> but you, you, you know, you've integrated a whole urban native woodland in that. What was the approach to doing that? Like, did you encounter any barriers or any resistance to doing something that I guess is so significantly different to to what we've seen before? It was finished about eleven years ago, so you can imagine it was quite ahead of its time for Hong Kong. There are other net zero demonstration building around the world, but they are much smaller scale. The one we built in Hong Kong, the scale is larger, and the site has a、uh, significant sort of urban center. The native woodland was something that came out of the conversation. We hosted a bunch of、uh, community workshop when we were. Doing the initial design, and through the community workshop, the notion of a park was brought up, which is much needed to cool the air, create a nice visually a nice space, and also a space where the public can use and enjoy. 
having the idea of having a natural species, native species, uh, lowering the maintenance of the space, right? If you introduce a foreign species, whether they are climatized, whether they are um, appropriate for the soil environment, the climate environment, it's always in question. The client was welcoming that idea, so we embark on that journey. And the benefits, once the, the trees were planted, the plants were planted, it's sort of biodiversity uh, start coming alive with birds and insects staying in. So creating a quite a natural environment where not just uh, it looks green, but actual urban biodiversity was improved. We were talking a little bit about behaviour there and, and, and I guess the role of, of, I guess, the people that inhabit the buildings can play in, I guess, making more sustainable environments and having them buy into it. How is your practice looking to build this into the work that you're doing and, and I guess also spreading the message? We have a new entity called Behave. It's a research arm that evolved out of our sustainability team. Behave, the word stems from behavior, and it's technology changing our behavior and the way we design things should be anticipating future behaviors uh, change. And that entity is really for as an advisory entity that helps client to strategize where they need to be next three, four, five years. And we have clients that coming to us very often say, hey, we want to do more sustainability stuff. What can we do and what should we do across our portfolio of existing building and future projects? So we've been helping them to look into different aspects. And the conversation usually take us to more advanced scenarios where nowadays we're looking into you know, the carbon footprint issue, the embodied carbon issues, how do we source material, and also leading to potentially new technology. So I was just having a conversation with a sustainable venture capitalist that talk about new technologies on concrete, seeing how that can be a low carbon emission product. And these are the future conversation that we are looking through the BEHAVE uh, team, which then comes back and inform our architectural team what can be done, what could be done, more importantly, shaping our clients' future sustainability strategy, not just the basic greenwashing, but really impactful technology application that can help them to uh, reach that 1.5 degree target. My thanks to Bryant Liu of Ronald Liu and Partners. Next up, Monocle On Design's producer, May Lee Evans, uh, is turning on her microphone to have a little bit of a chat with me. You, you rounded out the year by, by doing a little bit of reporting, uh, a nice way to end 2023. Tell us uh, what you picked up. Yes, so this is an interview I conducted at the end of last year. I met the designer, Hanova Pravliova, uh, when I was in Prague reporting for Czech Design Week. And it just kind of caught my attention again as I was reflecting on the year um, and maybe some things I wanted to bring into this year's uh, Monocle. So this, this is a New Year's resolution. This is a New Year's action. revolution. Revolution, resolution <laughs> even. But yeah, so, so I met her um, at Czech Design Week. But what I found interesting is I later spotted her work again as the particular collection uh, we're going to discuss had also been selected to show for an awards exhibition, the Stanislav Lebensky Award, which is a prestigious international competition for emerging glassmakers and, and, you know, is colloquially known as the Oscar for Young Glassmakers. So it's a pretty prestigious award. Is there, I, I assume there's a nice trophy to go along with it made out of glass? I think you're right there. Okay. Well, I mean, so so she's she's been uh, selected to show. What 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 was she displaying? 
She was showcasing this collection of glass vessels called PAP. Um, and this is named after the paper recycling label that you would find in the Czech Republic and gives a hint to maybe some of the materials used in, in the making process. So these glass vessels are quite undulating in shape. They've got this textured exterior um, and that's due to the unusual making process. So uh, moulds for, for glass making, for glass blowing, are usually made from ceramic clay, wood, metal. But in this instance, she's using corrugated cardboard. That's sort of the type you might find in supermarket packaging. Sorry, and is that the PAP? Yes, exactly. So that's where that name's coming from. So there's one particular collection called PAP20. That's a particular kind of cardboard that she's using. So she she's really digging through she the likes recycling cardboard. bin. Exactly that. Um, so in, in the process, this material stacked high, a bit like a sandwich, um, in these sort of undulating shapes. You know, if you cut into a bit of cardboard, you get that interior wave that's going on. And that is what Hannah is really interested in and how this pattern is imprinted on the glass in lots of different ways. Well, I'm, I'm excited to hear about this making process. So you, you talk to Hannah about it. Let's throw to that interview now. I like the structure of the cardboard what comes during the glass blowing and the forms are the shape. Everything here it's about the wave, the shapes, the decor and I would like to put this wave of this normal basic paper material to shine. The project is about simple things we are missing every day. We are walking around it in the supermarket and we don't care. You were explaining to me earlier that what this mould allows are certain shapes that are difficult in a traditional mould. Mm-hmm. With a traditional mould, you're having to do a shape that's easy for a piece of glass to be removed from, but for this, we can have shapes that are maybe a little bit more extreme or a little bit more unusual. Yeah, because the mould is burning during the process and uh, it disappears, so you can easily play with the shapes and play with the structure. It's also about some random moments during the the process of the blowing. We've got a collection and they're all slightly different. There's quite a lot of character to each piece and I suppose the whole process means that each is unique. It's not uniform and even if you had a mould that was the same, each has a bit of character. Because every mould is For one use, I think it's really important to play with the shapes because every mold can be different. When I'm playing with what I just found in a supermarket, I can just cut it and play with it. And I think that's what what I like on this project, that it's not that I can choose one perfect shape, but I really like that I can just do a lot of type of the molds. And I'm always surprised that it's come out of the form and I'm like okay it's absolutely different than before and it's nice. So each time it is a bit of a surprise for you. Yeah yeah I know how to work with the forms when it's really uh, pressed together the shape will be probably the best and when there is more space between the layers there is space for the random uh, glass. <laughs> And you were telling me earlier how you want to develop this process, what else you want to experiment with. Tell me a little bit about yeah, where you're looking to next. I want to try it a little bit bigger because now the highest one is like 30 centimetres. I would like to try bigger because I don't know how the paper will react on the more hot glass. Also, I have one more paper material what I want to develop to some collection. 
I really like going to the supermarkets and taking like the paper plates where is the yogurts are in the boxes <laughs> and I'm just cutting it to squares and I want to experiment with this more also I want to develop maybe one collection just from this found uh, supermarket papers. That was Hannah Vopra Vilova in conversation with Monocle's Maylie Evans. So obviously we've heard the chat. You've been on the ground. I, I want to hear, you know, you're, you're at Czech Design Week. There's, there's a host of different things to, to look at or, and people to talk to. What jumped out to you about Hannah's work? Like, what, why speak to her? What I found most interesting about Hannah's approach is this notion of not being fixed to a certain outcome, of the making process leading the way. Um, and, and sort of being open to that. It reminded me a lot of the process-driven approach of Marco Campado, who we had on the show earlier last year. He's the winner of the Ralph Saltzman Prize. Um, and again, very interested in that experimental making. That is what drives him to design. Or, or even it reminded me of Omar Abel of Bucky, who, who brought a glass hotshot to the V&A, where his team were melting down copper and glass. And again, the process is what they found most exciting. You know, the outcome was something that they'd find out with the public. And I think there's something in there the process being the exciting part. And, you know, we're always told to trust the process. And I think this is a a great example of that. Is there a consumer appeal to finding out about this making? Or are the objects beautiful? Do they stand well, uh, you know, alone in their own right? Obviously, we're an audio medium here. But tell me a little bit about the visuals. Are they beautiful? This kind of approach is maybe more suited to more collectible design, I suppose. When I've seen examples of this, it's in that one-off. It's very much revered as being the one and only. So I'd be interested to see if there are any companies that really make this process-driven kind of design part and parcel of its appeal and, and consumers going, actually, I don't know what the final piece is going to look like and that's kind of why I want it. Nick, for you, would you buy a vase or a chair without knowing exactly what it might look like? For me, it sounds kind of fun for everybody, whether you're the person buying it and potentially putting this in your home, getting something that is so unique and, and standalone, but also for the, the creative. I mean, it sounds like Hannah's having a great time, especially if you're into going through other people's recycling. And and I think, you know, on a, on a more serious note, what I do like about about this is I guess it's almost a celebration of, of randomness and, and imperfection. And I think it, it's something that, you know, for various different reasons, is, is taking hold, I feel, of, of, of the design world. Certainly in furniture, there's a willingness to embrace imperfect timber. I mean, Artec, the, the famous Finnish uh, company that makes beautiful stools, it was Alba Alto's company, they, they've now started releasing lines of furniture that use imperfect timber. And whilst maybe that's not what Hannah is going for here, I think there is a similarity in terms of a willingness to kind of let go and, and let materials take the forms that, that they want to take and, and, and realising that there is a beauty to that and to not having something that's so perfectly polished. I mean, more broadly, if you do want to read about Artec and the implications of, I guess, a celebration of imperfection in the timber industry, then do pick up a copy of Monocle's December-January issue, which is on all good newsstands now. Uh, my thanks to Maylie Evans for, for joining me there. We'll be back after this. The Menu, bringing you Monocle's recipe for the best in drinking and dining. We make entertaining a doddle. It's incredibly easy to make. With expert opinions. You can use fish fillets, which you grill in the oven or pan fry. A bit of seasoning. Lots of lime, a lot of cracked pepper and a bit of good olive oil. And plenty of spice. And then you cook it in caraway and seven spice, as well as something sweet. Then you take a big pot of mascarpone and spoon it into your egg yolk. And maybe even a little bit nuts. You take it out, you top it with some pine nuts and you're good to go. 
it's a recipe that's guaranteed to impress. It's slightly controversial, but it's the one thing that has surprised the most people when they eat it. Premiering live every Friday at 2000 London time, midday in Los Angeles, or downloadable wherever you get your podcasts. Like many countries, the United States is facing a housing shortage. It needs to build huge numbers of homes to keep pace, which begs the question, what should these houses look like? That's the premise of Harvard University's first ever survey on the topic. It's called The State of Housing Design and is published by Harvard University Press. The volume examines over 100 recent residential projects across the country. Monocle's Gregory Scruggs visited one of the projects featured in the book, but he also spoke to the book's co-author, Dan Doker, the associate professor at Harvard's Graduate School of Design and a practising urban planner, explained to Gregory why the book features nearly every housing typology except the detached single-family home. He began by explaining why this housing type is so prevalent. I think to answer that question, we've got to understand a little bit about what the single family house means <laughs> to most Americans. I think it, it's fair to say it holds a special place in the hearts of most Americans. It's, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the cornerstone of the American dream, you know, the manufactured lawn, the picket fence, the single family house. And these things have been and, you know, I think continue to be I- idealized. They, they promise freedom and privacy sense of belonging. Owning one continues to be seen as a symbol of success and upward mobility. We just have built too many single family houses and people who don't want to live in them, they just don't have enough opportunities to live elsewhere. Second, we're just out of room, right? So there's plenty of room. It's a big country, but it's not where we want to build. We, we want to build in places of opportunity. We're running out of room in those places, so it's hard to build single families in them. Third, I think we've, we've learned the hard way that single-family houses just don't work well for everyone, seniors, for example. And I think fourth, there's a lot of externalities, right, when it comes to single-family houses. There's sprawl, there's auto-dependency, you know, social isolation. We're going down the, you know, let's absolutely prioritize multifamily housing road. When I say we, I mean my co-authors and I, and, and that's why we decided to do this. That's where our attention as a profession should be. There are plenty of places to read about single family design, and we decided that this book just wouldn't be one of them. We think that there are just not enough options for people who don't want to live in suburbs, and we also have to take these negative externalities seriously, these things that sometimes come with suburbs and single family houses. So for those reasons, that's why we did not include single family houses in the book. So as you surveyed the landscape of alternative housing typologies in the U.S., what emerged as some of the the broad themes, the most promising approaches that could shine a light on housing design beyond the single-family house? There's a really great tradition in the States of multifamily <laughs> design. And I think, you know, the book looks at like du- duplexes, like um, just some random examples, like you know, the outpost in, in Portland or new good condominium designs um, like the mill houses, something we look at in the book by, by Merge Architects. Um, really nice new townhome designs. Uh, there's a project by Michael uh, Sue Architects in, in Austin. Good townhouse designs, good mega block designs, good urban info. I mean, there's good new stuff happening. And a lot of it is actually based on um, precedent, right? I mean, there, there was a time where we built more 
diverse types of housing. So I think that's that's the first thing we we want to say. You know, we we looked at a lot of different themes. The book is actually organized around 25 different themes that are we we thought were prevalent in housing design today. One of the themes was uh, disguised density. The idea with disguised density is not enough housing is built, just period. Housing density, it's still way below what it should be. But we, we, we know that adding density is sometimes met with resistance. You know, some people call it nimbyism. There's also, by the way, bananaism, which is build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. Um, there's also the, the igamfus, I got mine, F you. We're all aware of stories, right, of, of perfectly good, decent housing projects being resisted by neighborhoods who simply don't want their neighborhood to change for whatever reason. And so disguised density is a kind of design strategy that a lot of projects we saw use to kind of obscure their, their unit count with clever architectural moves and playing, with, playing around with density and, and being clever about the, the, the way that they cite the house. A couple of the projects that we looked at in that theme follow the small lot subdivision ordinance, which was a which is from Los Angeles from a couple of years ago, which tried to reduce setback requirements and lot sizes and make it easier for people to do kind of urban infill. So we looked at the Blackbirds by Bester Architecture and a really nice project by uh, Lorcan O'Hurley called uh, Canyon Drive. That's a really important theme and it's a it's an important trend. I mean, on the one hand, you, you know, we, we shouldn't have to do that. We shouldn't have to disguise density. We should embrace it. <laughs> that's one theme is disguised density. And that's a situation we're in in a lot of places. That's not everywhere, right? I mean, so there are some places that embrace density. I think increasingly we're seeing a groundswell of, of voices saying we need density and we embrace it and we want it. We want big apartments. We see the benefits and the co-benefits that density brings. Of course, there are some cities that already have the zoning for density. And so a lot of the projects in the book are not disguised density. They're just density. They're big. They look great. And an example of that, I, I think, would be you know the Station House in Seattle, which is a terrific project. Next stop, Capitol Hill. Now entering Capitol Hill. Doors to my left. Hi, I'm Grace Kim. I'm an architect and one of the owners of Squamata Workshop. We are an architecture and urban design firm located in Capitol Hill in Seattle. Um, and our focus is on projects that support community, racial equity, and sustainability. And we are standing at the Capitol Hill uh, light rail station, um, standing atop the light rail station in a plaza that is surrounded by four buildings. Um, mixed-use buildings that have retail on the ground floor. We're standing right next to um, Glows, which is a retro diner that has moved here from a much smaller location on the hill, um, has been a, an institution on Capitol Hill for decades. And around us are other businesses um, that serve light rail and serve the greater neighborhood. The four buildings that are around us, uh, one of them is Station House, 110 units of affordable housing um, that is operated and owned by Community Roots Housing, a local nonprofit public development authority. Uh, the other three buildings are market rate or privately owned, have 20% um, that are affordable for folks that are earning 80% and less um, income in, in the area. Um, and in Seattle, that is quite a lot of money because um, the tech industry sort of drives up our area median income. That leaves a lot of average folks that are working good, decent jobs um, at a very low income range compared to the, the overall community. 
the, the four buildings that surround us um, are six stories in height. Uh, the ground level is commercial and retail. This is a, a fairly large um, sort of city block sized lot that has three station entrances for the light rail station, one at the north end, one at the south end, and one across the street. One side of the complex is uh, defined by a, a low-scaled residential street, um, mostly single families at the time we started design. And then on the other side is Broadway, which is sort of the main drag through Capitol Hill. Capitol Hill is a very dense neighborhood, um, the densest north of San Francisco and west of Chicago. Um, it was the neighborhood at one point, so one of the five largest gay populations in the country. And the public art that is in the plaza um, and in the adjacent park reflect that heritage and that history. The pieces that are here are part of the AMP, the AIDS Memorial Pathway, and that project was um, an integral part of the overall placemaking um, for for this. The large plaza that is central to this um, this campus or this complex um, is where a farmers market takes place twice a, a week. Um, it's where other informal activities happen. Um, it's a hardscaped area that is pedestrian oriented. Uh, cars are not allowed here, um, so when I walk through here almost daily. There are you know, different activities like roller skate meetups or people practicing a dance routine or you know, just people hanging out um, and different things like that. Or kids learning how to ride a bike because it's a smooth area or that they can inline skate because it's a smooth area. Ten years ago, none of this was here. The light rail station below us wasn't here. These buildings were not here. It was low rise. There were parking lots, single, some single family houses. To what extent is this project sort of emblematic of where U.S. cities need to go if they are going to address the ongoing housing crisis in this country. The Capitol Hill transit-oriented development is, is exactly how we should be um, developing housing in our country. Um, in this case, there was a multi-billion dollar investment of public transit for the overall region, and it is very fitting that on top of that public investment, additional public investment was, was made to provide affordable housing on this site. The fact that of the 435 homes here, almost half of them are for people that of lower incomes. Um, and I think that is very appropriate and just. When we make those public investments, everybody should benefit from those public investments, not just the people that can afford to pay the highest rents. Design of this um, building, the four buildings, um, is very um, integrated and, and holistic. All of the buildings were drawing from a similar material palette and were supposed to have a certain um, public civic quality. When you walk by the front of Station House and the adjacent building to the south, um, that is the higher-end luxury market rate building, the passerby doesn't have any idea that there's that distinction. The materials on the lower level are all brick. The landscape was done all by the same landscape architect and contractors, so there's a cohesiveness to it. And so there isn't the, a, a perception of oh, that is public housing or affordable housing, and these are the market rate homes. It's all one sort of well-designed, if I can say that, and well-executed. Um, that was Grace Kim, and before that, Dan Doker. My thanks to Monocle's Gregory Scruggs for those interviews. The State of Housing 2023 is published by Harvard University Press and is available to order now. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. Listening.